Who is your first crush? You got a name in mind, maybe? Maybe you had your first crush when you were a kid, and kids express their admiration for their crushes in pretty hilarious ways. For some reason, boys, they like to pull on pigtails to show their admiration for their crush. I don't know, maybe we think if I annoy her, then she'll like me. (laughs) Girls dream of their crush loving them uh, by pulling on petals. Maybe you've played this game. You take a flower, like a daisy, and you pluck one petal at a time. What do you do? You pluck one petal, you say, he loves me. You pluck another one, you say, he loves me not. And you keep going until you reach the final petal. And whatever you land on, that seals the fate of this relationship. (laughs) Do you treat your relationship with God like that? A constantly shifting game of he loves me, he loves me not. Here are signs that you might. You might treat your relationship with God like a game of he loves me, he loves me not, if you inconsolably panic at the sight of opposition or hardship. So something hard happens in your life and all of a sudden God's love is unsure or even irrelevant to you. You rely on your performance. If you help an old lady across the street, he loves me. Skip your Bible reading for the day, he loves me not. Another sign is that you run to other refuge to obtain the security and the satisfaction that you think you don't have. So maybe you take refuge in your political party. That's what makes you feel good and righteous and safe. Maybe you take refuge in your iPhone screen. It's instant gratification makes you feel powerful and stimulated. We read earlier our call to worship was Romans 839 which says that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, believer in Jesus, how would your relationship with God be different if you lived like Romans 8.39 is true? If you lived like that, you wouldn't need to play the he loves me, he loves me not game. You wouldn't have to pull the petals of your present circumstances or your past performance because you would be looking to Jesus. And united to Jesus, you can have the security and the satisfaction that God really always truly loves you. There's no gain. Today in Numbers 22 through 25, we'll see that God's sure and powerful love enables us to have confidence in the face of opposition and holiness in the face of temptation. That main point provides really the two main pillars for our time through these chapters. In Numbers 22 to 24, we'll see confidence in the face of opposition. That pillar holds up a little bit more material, so we'll spend more time in those chapters. In Numbers 25, we'll see holiness in the face of temptation. So if you're not with me there, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 22. It is the fourth book of the Bible. And if you're looking at the Bibles provided, it looks like this. You'll find it on page 130. So let's just set the scene for what's about to happen. I'll read the first six verses. Just follow along as I go. If you're new to the Bible, it's a good place to be. 
When I say chapter, uh, that's referring to the big, bold number on the page. When I say verse, that refers to the little numbers that come after that. Numbers 22, verses 1 to 6. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. And Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all, all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, the people that has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in 2008, there was a movie called Vantage Point that released. It's about attempted assassination of the president of the United States. It's really not that original of a plot, but it is an original presentation of that plot. The movie really covers the same action only from eight different perspectives of the main characters or eight different vantage points. The tagline of the movie is eight strangers, eight points of view, one truth. I don't know if they could release that movie in 2023. Um, That's kind of what's going on here in this part of Numbers. Numbers 22 through 24, they're unusual in a lot of ways. But the main way they're unusual is that here we get an outsider's perspective on what's been happening with the Israelites. We get to see Israel from another vantage point. People outside of Israel are literally looking out at Israel's camp. We get to see things from their point of view, and we get to see their schemes as well. So we said these chapters will give Israel confidence in the face of opposition. What does that opposition look like? Well, it begins with this guy named Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. Moab borders the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, to the southeast. The Moabites have yet to fight against the Israelites, but they have heard about the new kid on the block. Balak has heard about Israel's recent victories. And when you look back at Numbers 22, verse 3, you see that Balak and all of Moab are scared. They're shaking in their sandals. It says they are in great dread of the people and that they are overcome with fear. So Balak hatches a plan. He says, if I can't beat them, then I'll curse them. So Balak calls Balaam, not to be confused. I know it's confusing. Balak calls Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Balaam's not from Moab. He's from further east. But Balaam's become this internationally renowned spiritual assassin. You can call him like the Liam Neeson of prophets. (laughs) He has a particular set of skills, skills that he has acquired over a long career, skills that make him a nightmare for people he targets. And Balak knows this about Balaam. If you read the end of verse six, Balak says, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. 
When you read a line like that, the warning sign should be flashing very brightly in your mind. Balak is mistaken. Balak credits Balaam with having a power that only God has. And when you read this end of the end of verse six, you're meant to be reminded of something that God has already said. It's a verse that looms large over these chapters. It's Genesis 12, verse three. We read it earlier. This is God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. God promises Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Balak is mistaken. He credits Balaam with having a power that only God has. But you see, Balak's mistake isn't limited to the ancient Near East. His mistake is present with us today. My friend, your natural mindset is to credit yourself with a power that only God has. Our culture reinforces that mistake. It tells you that your experiences, your preferences, your story determines what is true. Yes, those things matter, but those things just aren't ultimate. As one author writes, you and I are creatures. We are not the creator. It's God's story and God's word that is ultimate, not yours. It's his story that infuses meaning into your story. His story reveals a meaning to our lives that we receive, not a meaning that we create. Don't make the same mistake as Balak and act like you're the creator when you're the creature. Let's continue to look at the opposition that God's people receives. This time it's not from Balak, but from Balaam. Chapter 22 continues. Balak sends an envoy to Balaam. He sends, he sends this envoy, verse seven, with the fees of divination. What's that about? Well, divination is this crazy practice. Yes, this is what they actually did when these pagan prophets would cut open an animal and they would look at its intestines and somehow that would determine what future events are. This is what Balaam does. This practice uh, was outlawed by God for the people of Israel. Anyway, uh, God, then uh, the envoy reaches Balaam in chapter 22. They explain the situation. They make their request on Balak's behalf. And then God shows up to Balaam. Verse 12, God tells him, hey, don't go with these guys and don't curse my people. The whole thing should have ended right there. And initially, Balaam listens. He sends the envoy packing. But Balak comes knocking on Balaam's door again. And this time, he sends more guys. He sends more important guys. And the cherry on top, he offers more money. Now he's speaking Balaam's language. Balak basically tells Balaam, listen, name your price and I'll give it to you. Just as an aside, let me tell you that people like Balak will come into your life. People like Balak will come into your life. People who put before you the prospect of living in comfort and luxury. Maybe people like that look like the influencers you scroll through on Instagram who have nice stuff and nice things. Maybe the people like that look like the friend or colleague who pitches you a multi-level marketing scheme and promises you that you can get rich off of it. Now, people like this, however subtly, seek to draw you to love gifts from God more than the giver of those gifts himself. 
But again, on the surface, Balaam's response, it sounds good. It sounds godly. He tells Balak, you can give me all the stuff you have. I can't go against the word of the Lord. That sounds good and godly. But here's an important example to read closely. Look at verse 19. Look at what Balaam tells Balak's friends. He says, so you two, please stay here tonight that I may know more what the Lord will say to me. Now, hold on. What God has already said has been pretty crystal clear. Verse 12 should have been enough. God already said, no, Balaam. It seems like Balaam wants the money. So he tells Balak's henchmen, yeah, God has said this to me, but let me go back and ask again and maybe I'll get a different response. This is also an example uh, of the importance of letting the Bible interpret itself. So later parts of the Bible comment on this part of the Bible. For example, 2 Peter 2, verse 15, it talks about the, the motivation of false teachers. And it says they have the same motivation as Balaam did here. That verse says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Friends, don't make the same mistake as Balaam. Don't love gifts from God more than God himself. Friend, don't think that you can dupe God either. God knows if you are just playing church. You might know the right words to say. You might know the right way to appear. You might know how to sound good and godly like Balaam does. But God knows underneath all of that what you really care about. Don't believe me? Look at how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. He sees right through them. They appear good and godly. And what does he call them? He says, I know you are lovers of money just out for yourself, just like Balaam. Jesus also says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So though it might not look like it on the surface, Balaam's opposition does continue. Chapter 22, verse 20, God tells Balaam that if Balak's men call him again the next morning, that yeah, you can go with them, but you're not to go beyond what I tell you to do. Balak's men don't seem to call, and yet Balaam goes anyway. He straddles his donkey. He heads off on his greedy mission. And God gets angry at this. So he sends the angel of the Lord to block Balaam's path. Three different times, Balaam's donkey sees the angel of the Lord and tries to protect Balaam and stops. And each of those times, Balaam gets frustrated with his donkey and hits it. And after the third time, God opens the donkey's mouth and it talks to Balaam. One of the craziest parts of the Bible, I know. The donkey tells Balaam, hey, basically, I've always looked out for you, Balaam, and I'm doing the same thing right now. But then finally, Balaam's eyes are open to see what his donkey has seen. He sees the angel of the Lord in front of him, and the same lesson is impressed upon him. Don't go beyond God's word. You got it? Capiche? Now, what's the meaning of all this? What's the meaning of all this donkey and Balaam? Well, I think at one level, we're supposed to see a lot of irony here in this story. Because remember, Balak thinks that Balaam is this powerful guy who can see into the future. But here, Balaam is powerless and he's blind. 
Remember, Balaam's supposed to be this specialist in animal divination. Remember the intestines thing? But here, his animal sees what he is blind to. Remember, Balaam's supposed to be this internationally renowned prophet, like the Liam Neeson, right? And yet here is a dumb donkey who can see better than he does. And at another level, this entire scene previews, about, previews what's about to happen. Just as God uses the donkey and Balaam gets frustrated, so God is about to use Balaam and Balak will get frustrated. And so in both cases, God's message is, you're not going to use me for your purposes. I'm going to use you for my purposes. God tells Balaam, essentially, you're no harder for me to control than this donkey is. And so throughout chapters 22 to 24, Balaam gets this lesson again and again that he can't go beyond God's word. And even though Balaam knows this in his mind, he keeps walking forward in his greedy mission, trying to get that money from Balak. One commentator on this passage observes this about Balaam. Balaam believes that he has a hold on the gods. And to Balaam, Yahweh was not the Lord of heaven. He's just another deity whom he can manipulate. Don't make the same mistake as Balaam. Let me ask you, do you manipulate God to bend to your agenda or do you bend to God's agenda? Something I read recently helps me think about this. Think about the last time you did a cannonball into a pool. Has it been a long time? Maybe. Go have some fun and, and do that this summer. Last time you did that, what happened? Well, hopefully you didn't get hurt. <laughs> but when, I, when you did a cannonball into the pool, you, the heavier object, landed on the water and displaced the lighter thing. The lighter object had to make space for you. It's like a water quake. Author Andrew Wilson writes this. When God lands on you, you are meant to experience a self-quake. The heavier thing is meant to displace the lighter thing. That's one way you can tell, he says, if you've met God or simply a figment of your imagination. A made-up God will leave your world undisturbed, conveniently aligning with your priorities without displacing anything because ultimately you are more glorious and heavier than it. The real God, however, will land in the middle of your life like an elephant crashing through the ceiling, displacing your sin, changing all your priorities, forcing you to reorient yourself around the weight of his glory. Have you experienced a self-quake? Do you manipulate God to bend to your agenda or do you bend to God's agenda? Well, so far we've seen opposition to God's people from Balak and from Balaam, but now we get to see God's answer to that opposition. This answer spans over seven different oracles or messages that God gives through Balaam. These messages happen over the course of chapters 23 and 24. So if you're looking at the Bible that I'm looking at, uh, the headings will tell you that there are just four oracles, but really that fourth one is split up into three. So it's a total of seven. So every message or oracle is introduced with this phrase, 
And Balaam took up his discourse and said. Now, through all of these, God's big message is this, that not only will my people not be cursed, but their blessing will increase and it will ultimately come through one descendant, a king. That's the big message. Let's just take an overview of these oracles. So follow along with me. Keep your eyes hovering over chapters 23 and 24. In the first couple of oracles in chapter 23, Balaam and Balak start these off with these big ornate sacrifices. So there's no instruction from God for them to do this. Again, I think that this is these guys trying to manipulate God for him to do the things that they want him to do. So in the first oracle, chapter 23, verses seven to 10, Balaam looks out and, and through him, God says, like these, are, these people of Israel are big and they are unique. They are different from the other nations. Now, Balaam could at this point join Israel, but instead he keeps on trying to curse them along with Balak. They do their whole cursing ritual again. And the second oracle comes in verses 18 to 24. And so through Balaam, God proclaims an important truth about himself in chapter 23, verse 19. He says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. There's a good memory verse, but in context, God's saying that he's not going to take back the promise he's made to Abraham. Again, as the oracle continues, Balaam sees this big and unstoppable and glorious people when he looks out at Israel. But the thing is, if you and I were standing where Balaam was standing, when we looked at out at Israel, we would see at best a very ordinary looking people. And at worst, we would see people who look like they're homeless because they are living in tents, vagabonds, So what makes them so powerful, so big, so beautiful? Chapter 23, verse 21. The Lord says through Balaam, the Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king is among them. As we go into chapter 24, it begins what's really like the second half of God's oracles through Balaam. This time, there's no sacrifice manipulation. Instead, Balaam's looking out at the Israelites from another vantage point, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. So if the first half of Balaam's oracles focused on Israel's past and present and focused on Israel as a whole, the second half focuses on Israel's future. And it focuses on one Israelite in particular. So Balaam looks out, and again, he describes the camp that he sees. And he describes the blessings of Eden. Chapter 24, verse 6, he sees palm trees and gardens and rivers. Verse seven is more language from Genesis one. He sees people who are fruitful. They're overflowing water. People who have multiplied. He says their seed will spread. How will these blessings of Eden come about? Well, as the rest of chapter 24 continues, they will come about through a conquering king. Fast forward to the last round of oracles in verse 17. God says through Balaam, I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. A lot's packed into this verse. When God says this through Balaam, he's referring back to promises that he's already made. Promises made in Genesis 3, verse 15. When Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them, I will raise a descendant from Eve who will crush the serpent's head. When God makes this promise in Numbers 24, he refers back to a promise he's made in Genesis 49, verse 10. 
There Jacob, later named Re-Israel, he's on his deathbed. And through him, God promises things to Jacob's sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis, 20, Genesis 49, verse 10, God promises Judah that the scepter, the kingdom, will not depart from him. So here in Numbers 24, hundreds of years later, God says these promises from Genesis 3, from, Gen- from Genesis 49, will be fulfilled by the same person, a king from Judah who will crush the serpent's head. Numbers 24 goes on to mention enemies that this king will conquer. Initially, as we continue reading the Bible, these specific enemies are conquered by King David. You can read that in 2 Samuel chapter 8. But King David's victories don't last. Like many prophecies in the Bible, there are multiple layers of how they are fulfilled. So what King David does in part, King Jesus does in full. All these, pro- all these prophecies, all these promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Just think about what we read earlier. How is Jesus's birth announced? It's surely not a coincidence. It's probably a reference back to Numbers 24. It's announced by a star rising in the east. Even listen to how Jesus describes himself in Revelation 22, 16. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So Balak and Balaam oppose God's people. And then God gives these messages. And his big answer to this opposition is that not only will my people not be cursed, but their blessing will increase and it will come through one descendant, a king. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of reading the Bible backwards. Because you and I, when we read the Bible, what we often do is that we we read it and then we immediately jump forward and say, what does this mean for me in my life? Instead, when you read it, go backwards and think about the people who the Bible was written to and written about. Ask, what was the original situation? Ask, why is this here in the first place? It's going to help you see new significance. What about for this passage? Why on earth is Numbers 22 to 24 here? Why would this be here for the Israelites? How would God intend to use the stories of Balak and Balaam for his people? Surely, I think he would intend to use these passages, these chapters, to comfort his people. They have broken his law time after time. And yet, God says, my promise still stands. My love still remains. It's like God's telling his people, not even the strongest of kings, not even the wisest of prophets can dissuade me from breaking my promises to you. My Christian brother and sister, you can know this comfort even more deeply when you trust in Jesus and are united to him. Friend, you and I have a bent to our hearts. By nature, you act like the creator, not the creature. You attempt to manipulate God to your will, attempt to rule your life as your own king. And when you do that, you declare yourself to be a rival to what God rightfully deserves. That's why the Bible says that by default, you are not God's friend but God's enemy. And the amazing news is that the king who is promised here in Numbers was crushed in the place of his enemies. That those who trust Jesus to go in their place and follow him as king of their lives are no longer God's enemies, but God's friends. So when God sees you, he sees you in Jesus. That though you might be in the wilderness looking homeless, you are actually planted in God's garden and he is present with you. 
and nothing can break his promise to you. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These chapters can comfort you, Christian. Here in these chapters with with God's enemies seeking to get God to curse his people, you can take heart that Jesus has taken and absorbed all the curse that you deserve. That means right now that everything God permits to happen in your life will only turn out to bless you. That's a strong statement. But if Jesus took all the curse you deserve, then that means everything that God permits to happen to you will only turn out ultimately to bless you. This doesn't mean you minimize the the wrongs that others have done to you, the losses that you experience. You still grieve, but my friend, you grieve as one who has hope. Because the God of Numbers 22 to 24, let me tell you, he hasn't gone out of business. God is still the industry leader of taking human evil and bending it for divine good. The industry leader of bending curse and bringing out blessing. That's what he did here in Numbers. That's what he did ultimately at the cross. That's what he'll continue to do for you as he makes you more like Christ. We'll sing about it in just a few moments. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Christian, you have every reason to have confidence in the face of opposition. Now we turn more briefly to Numbers 25. Here we see that God's sure love for us in Christ can enable us not just to have confidence in the face of opposition, God's sure love for us in Christ can enable us to have holiness in the face of temptation. So if I got to write the italicized headings in the Bible, which aren't original to the text, by the way, if I was in charge of that before Numbers 25, I would have written, meanwhile, in the camp of Israel. Chapter 25, 1 to 3, follow along as I read. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So God yoked himself, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Apparently, Israel is unaware of what God has just said about them. And instead, they get caught up in looking at the world around them. So here they are in the plains of Moab, and as they look around at the Moabites, what would they have seen? Well, they would have seen successful and established people. Look at these Moabites. They have a king. Look at these Moabites. They have a land. Look at these Moabites. They have beautiful women. You know, I wonder if you peel back the layers of their hearts, if the Israelites would have said something like this. We've been out here in this hell of a desert for 40 years. We have no stability. We have no prosperity. And here are these Moabites who have all the things that we don't have. What has God done for us lately? Look at all that Baal has done for them. You see, the irony about who can see and who can't see continues, and it's tragic. You remember that Balaam looked out of the camps of Israel and he saw beauty. He saw it as the Garden of Eden. And here Israel looks out at its own camp and sees a desert. 
Remember, Balaam was blind to the angel of the Lord in front of him. Israel is blind to the Lord himself dwelling in their midst. What was it that made Israel big and beautiful and powerful when Balaam saw them? Was it that they had all the same stuff that Moab has? No. It was that they had the God that Moab doesn't have. That's what made them big and strong and beautiful. Friends, better to be homeless in the wilderness with God than to be established and successful in the land without God. I wonder if you've ever made this connection. Your joy and satisfaction in Christ is crucial to your loyalty to Christ. How much you enjoy and are satisfied with Jesus will determine how loyal you are to Jesus. Because I bet for the Israelites, what had happened with them is God became boring. God became familiar. Has that happened to you? Have you become familiar with the creator of the stars and the planets and the galaxies? Have you become too familiar, too bored with the sovereign who rules over the winds and the waves and over everything that has breath? Have you become familiar with the redeemer who shed his own very blood for your soul? Have you become bored with the savior who loves you truly and faithfully and deeply and always? The measure you are enjoying and satisfied with Christ is the measure to which you will be loyal to Christ. My friend, if you wonder why that you constantly stray, if you realize why you constantly stray, if you realize what you have, then you wouldn't chase after the things that you think you're missing Because if you have God, you're not missing anything. So pray for yourself. Pray for your brother and sister here. Pray for this church that God would guard and deepen our joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Because to the degree that we enjoy and are satisfied with him is to the degree that we will be holy to him and loyal to him. May our prayer be Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing else on earth that I desire besides you. Let me just make another quick application in light of the beginning of Numbers 25, in light of the Israelites bowing down to Baal, the God of the Moabites. Do you know whose idea it was to send the Moabite women to the Israelite camp? I bet you can guess. It doesn't say right here. We learn about it in Numbers 31. It was Balaam's idea. Numbers 31, 16, on Balaam's advice, These women caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. So back when all this started, Balak said, if I can't beat Israel, I'll just curse Israel. So when that didn't work, Balaam figures out, if I can't get God to curse Israel, I'll seduce Israel to leave God. I often hear people praying at church, um, thanking God that we live in a country where we can gather freely to worship him. Amen. We should thank God for that. That's a gift that many of our fellow brothers and sisters don't have. But my friend, if you pray that, you should be careful. Because you might start to assume that Satan's only tactic is outright opposition. That's not the only way he works. Satan's fellow tactic and probably stronger tactic is seduction. In the land of prosperity and pleasure, you might not get prevented from coming to church on Sunday, but you can sure as heck get seduced into straying from God on Monday. 
Satan can't snatch you from Christ, but he can make you ineffective for the cause of Christ. Remember the goodness of Jesus, the security you have in him. Be satisfied in him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So as Numbers 25 continues, we're reminded that in any country, treason is a capital offense. We're reminded that the Israelites here, they break the first and most foundational commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. So what comes next in chapter 25 is hard to read, but it is also God's mercy. At God's initiative, he provides a way to atone for this sin so that the entire camp of Israel doesn't have to get wiped out. But where God's grace abounds, sin abounds even more. Look what happens next in verse six. It says, behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So if you put context clues together, as well as you get some help, you find weeping is actually a euphemism. One commentator on this passage notes that when Hebrew authors want to delicately describe what is a gross act, they will use the opposite word. So weeping really means laughing with pleasure. And even if you can't see that, the context will put it together for you. It makes sense of what Phineas, Aaron's grandson, does next. You see this Israelite and this Midianite were intimately together at the entrance of the tabernacle. That's how the Canaanites worship their gods. So Phineas takes a spear and runs it through both of them. Presumably he can do this because they're still in the act. And when Phineas does this, he keeps the entrance of the place where God meets man from becoming another brothel. When Phineas does this, he does his job as a priest. He guards the place where God is present. He guards the reputation of the God who dwells there. When Phineas does this, he satisfies God's wrath for sin and the people go free. And so for the rest of Numbers, there is not another death among those who are able to enter the promised land. Later in the Bible, God's priest will stand on behalf of God's people and again, accomplish atonement with a spear. This priest is also a prophet who didn't bend his father's will to his own, but bent his will to his father's. This priest and this prophet is also a king who straddled his donkey, not on a greedy mission to gain, but on a humble mission to give. This mission would result in victory over his enemies, more than just a victory over Moab, but over sin and over death. But this prophet, priest, king, didn't conquer by piercing sinners. He conquered by being pierced for sinners. And when he did this, he did more than guard the entrance to where God meets man. He tore the veil of the entrance where God meets man so that all who trust in him can enter in. When Jesus was pierced, he satisfies God's wrath, not just temporarily, but permanently. When Jesus is pierced for sinners, he doesn't just extend their lives, he gives them eternal life. My friend, if the Son of God was pierced for all of your sin, you no longer need to treat your relationship with God like he loves me 
he loves me not. You can start to live like Romans 8.39 is true, that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. And that will give you confidence in the face of opposition and holiness in the face of temptation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise and thank you for your sure love for us. We're going to ask God that you would keep and guard and deepen our joy in you, our satisfaction in you. Convince us, Lord, of, uh, and remind us of, of your love for us. Would you far surpass the greatest threat and would you far surpass the greatest gift? You are stronger and you are better. Help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.